Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. So welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast, Danny, and uh, can you give us an introduction, please? Thank you very much, Ryan, for having me on here. Uh, so I am, Danny, I'm hesitating now because we've just had a conversation about when I record to video with no one watching and I take about 100 takes, but if I've got to do it live, it's totally fine. Um, so I am the Chief Digital and Information Officer at Anti Nolan. Uh, we are the UK's National Stem Cell Register. We help save the lives of people with blood cancer by finding them a match. Um, I've been at Anti Nolan for five years. Um, and before that, I worked for the Grassroots Group, which were part of WPP uh, in the kind of professional services space. Um, and before that, I was in retail with Marks and Spencer and the Journalist Partnership. So predominantly focused on infrastructure. So right up until Gross, uh, right up until Anti Nolan, I was uh, infrastructure manager, head of CIO, but infrastructure focused. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm now in a role where I've got to kind of let that fun stuff go a little so I can concentrate on app dev and digital and data and all those other exciting things. Which is exactly one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Do you do you find that when you when you get the title CIO, it means I as infrastructure? Um, you know, you, the other stuff. my first gig was a yeah. uh, switch from head of infrastructure to CIO in name, just name, nothing else changed. Uh, and I was head of infrastructure. Uh, and there was, uh, there was another guy who ran all the app dev, all the products, all of the data. And, um, and that I was still regarded and recognized as a CIO. Um, but that's, that's probably your first incarnation of CIO from IT director or mm. infrastructure to, you know, how much of the mobile phones costing. And you still get it today. I still have a finance director come up to me and go, uh, how much are we spending on phones and photocopiers? <laughs> I'm like, really? Are we having this conversation? <laughs> I mean, if we're not already on the best possible deal, then, uh, I probably shouldn't be in this job. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think historically, yeah. Um, if you want to do a, a real quick whistle stop tour of CIO, CDO, CTO, in my book, um, CIO is the kind of all encompassing person responsible for technology and, uh, digital and data, the works. Um, and, and it can be used in different ways, but that in my book, that's what a CIO is. And that's the generic term in the absence of anything else. It's a CIO. Uh, CTO again in my book is someone who knows technology, who knows technical architecture, someone who's going to lead. So if you were a technology business uh, and Netflix, for example, you know, much of what they do is dependent on hardcore tech, then you probably want a CTO that is making sure that tech is absolutely sweet. And uh, so I would never apply for a CTO role if if done properly, because I'm not a technical architect. I've never coded, well, beyond six months of COBOL DB2 on the mainframe at John Lewis doesn't count. And then CDO, I'm wary of CDO. Um, I think if you have a CDO in, uh, and, and also have a CIO, then that means 
uh, is this, is this, uh, is, are expletives allowed on this podcast? I don't Go know. Ahead. Um, I think that means the organization hasn't got their shit together because mm. it means that they're going, Oh God, I've got an IT director, but he can't really help us move our business forward. So let me get some marketing guy in to help make the front end stuff look pretty. Um, and it's broken, you know, definitely you know, have your CMO, chief marketing officer, but they've got to be hand in glove or hand in hand with uh, the CIO and working together as a team to create that digital outlook. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was, as you were saying, I was thinking of a certain organization that I've worked for where exactly that had happened and you could actually see the car crash happening. Um, yeah, it just it's not dealing with the problem. That's, yep. there's nothing I hate more than that. It's, it's working around a problem rather than dealing with a problem and working around problem. And it doesn't matter whether it's your email system design or it's your C-suite design or whatever it might be. If you're working around the problem, it's going to come back and bite you. You know, we, we are baking enough technical debt into everything we do every single day consciously yep. that we don't need to add and add to future woes. It's hard enough to just keep up, let alone create more mountains that you know well, you're going to have to climb later. Well, that's exactly it. You're creating a cavern or, or, or a, um, a, a huge gap. I, mean, I remember sitting with the marketing guys under the CDO and they were doing a whole bunch of stuff. And I said, but, but you guys are taking this, like you're not even thinking about this from a security point of view, a design point of view. You're just buying stuff on your credit card and you're throwing it in. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to come to us in six months time and say, oh, now I need to integrate with everything else. And can we have this by next Monday? There's this element of maturity as well. Um, Yeah. You know, this stuff is hard and and by no means am I getting it right. But um, you often think, can I get this thing working? (laughs) Yeah. If I can get it working, I'm happy. But actually, okay, once you get to the point you know you can get this thing, whatever this thing is, again, email, website, um, core product proposition for your external customers, once you've got it working, then you really also have to be saying, can I get it secure? Can I get it accessible? Uh, Can I get it supportable? Can I get it scalable? Is it going to be performant? All of those things, all those non-functional things that if you start with a, if you start with an immature mindset and you don't know how to do this stuff and you get bogged down in layers and layers of, of what I've just described, you're never going to get anything live. Mm. So it's a bit about prototypes, prototypes, concepts, just get a concept that works. But when you're starting to put public data live, public systems live, you've got to make sure you, you got to meet these, um, these, these steps. My pet love at the moment is is devops um only because i'm discovering properly for the first time and the idea that you can bake in automation for a lot of that stuff is just a dream it is just mm. a dream um knowing that you've you've got this seemingly invisible thing between creating code or creating solutions and it going live and by invisible i mean if you get it right you wouldn't even know it was there just passes through the gate. Um, but if you haven't, then it's going to go right. Not only is it not ready to go, but specifically here is where it's failing. Here's what needs to be done to get it live. And, uh, getting a smart DevOps operation is great. I, I, um, I don't do a lot of tech reading, but I do enjoy the state of DevOps annual report. And you read through that and it, and it shows you the correlation between high performance organizations and um, and high 
performance DevOps within those organizations. And as you, you know, when you read it, you think this is very technical. Really, I think you're just trying to sell a technical architecture or technical solution. But when you start doing it and you see the impact it has on your not only your production, but also your culture within your organization, you get it. And I'll give you a very quick example. We uh, have just developed um, or redeveloped a predictive search algorithm for matching uh, blood cancer patients or people in need of stem cell transplant with the 40 plus million donors around the world. And you're not you're not saying you know, find me a local restaurant that's open and available, you know, with a table. You're saying, find me someone with a DNA profile. By the way, that DNA profile is raw data that came out of a lab any time in the last 40 years on a hundred different levels of maturity of technology. So there are gaps all over this data and the predictive bit is trying to fill those gaps. I've gone off the track here, but let me pull it back. Um, one of the things that was always a problem, we hadn't updated our algorithm for about 15 years because it was so hard. It would take a year or two years to go and validate a new algorithm. And we've written thousands of test scripts and uh, created all the test data and all the test scenarios. And in fact, we've written the test scripts in plain English. So the business can have a look at it and see plain English tests that are converted into code, but they're linked together, um, which means we can validate everything in under an hour automated. Uh, so you can start making little tiny tweaks and keep that algorithm fresh as you discover new factors that impact the quality or the likelihood of a match or, or an outcome, a positive outcome for a stem cell transplant. So your DevOps in there has just been, I mean, that's automated testing. I yep. appreciate but the That's an incredible uh, example of how you can be stagnant with a solution for 15 years, or now you can make updates every every week, every two weeks, every day, every month. Every day. Yeah. Um, you've got a choice basically. And that, that's a game changer, like absolute game changer. In fact, it's so good. We're so proud of it. Uh, we've made the whole thing open source. We've oh, made wow. it available to every single stem cell register in the world. It's available on GitHub. We hope people at universities studying uh, bioinformatics will use it. Uh, and hopefully it's not just the gift. Look at us. We're great. Here's a gift. It's actually, we want you to use it. We want you to find ways to improve it so that we can mm. all benefit from that. Uh, that's, that's something that we've been really focused on absolute priority over the last couple of years is, is to get that live. And that went live a few weeks ago uh, in terms of on GitHub and it's going live into operation and web and API accessible by every stem cell register in the world in the next few months. Jeez. And um, are you willing, or are you willing to get, we must get the link for that so we can share out the GitHub mm. repository. It's um, called Atlas, by the way. I didn't mention the name. It's called, sorry, Atlas. Which is Atlas. It's tentative. It's, it's loosely based on the Anthony Nolan search algorithm. Somewhere in there, you find those letters, but uh, it's good enough. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of naming products. I leave that to the, the teams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> our laboratory information management system is called Llamas, and uh, our uh, initial search algorithm called Snova. I have no idea why it's called Snova, but the team, not, not the tech team, the business team yeah. named it. They love it. They've, they've taken it in like a stray pet and they care for it and they clean up after it. And that, you know, that is, that's a huge win knowing yeah, that you've yeah. got the business who are passionate. Whereas before it would take six weeks to get people into a room to have a conversation and half of them wouldn't turn up. Now they're like, 
lining up at the door for the weekly demos. We were doing fortnightly sprints, but that was too slow. We now do weekly sprints because, you know, imagine we weren't making changes every every six or 12 months. Now, two weeks is too long. So we yeah. do it weekly. And every single team across the organization is now working on weekly sprints. It's just brilliant. The, the business are chomping at the bit. They're seeing value every single week. Um, mm. It's that's the that's the kind of the single biggest win is that cultural change. With the business. So, so we, we do still do, do two weekly sprints. Uh, sorry, two, two week sprints, but we release mm. every fr- every Friday. So they yeah. still see change, but we still manage yeah. the workload. Just, you know, that, that's what works for Which us. Which is great. And I think with DevOps, what we're doing now is just, we're not having release windows anymore. We're just releasing when we're ready to release and we release behind feature flags. Uh, and then we coordinate specific features to go live whenever the business are ready for it to go live. Um, but the release schedule is no longer rigid. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, just just going back to to... The, the DevOps culture, because I've always seen DevOps as the culture, and then things like CI/CD or continuous in continuous integration, continuous deployment as the actual technical piece to it. Mm. How have you um, how have you got the teams to buy into it? The uh, the tech teams. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's been kind of a long journey, and I'll do the short version of this. But <clears throat> you know, when we started, we had three devs. Uh, one was developing on VB6 still, um, and one was developing in a slightly more modern version of .NET. I, I'm, I'm not a developer, so I don't always know the, the right terms. And then the final one had just taught herself how to code on Google. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, we started off going, okay, we are not going to be able to make, yeah, forget CICD. Yeah. We, 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 where do we even start here? Um and I remember seeing a product and I thought, this looks like an access database. What's going on? And it's because there was no concept of even front-end development at this point. It was just a screen, whatever screen we can put up. Um, we actually put those three people onto apprenticeships. And and just to give you okay. context, so um, the tenure of these three people was eight years, 15 years, and 30 years at Anthony Nolan. Yeah. Right. Uh, so th- these are not kids that have just come out of uni, done a couple of years or to come out of school. So we put them on apprenticeships. We work with a partner. We defined a technical architecture. And then it was just really slow. The idea of working an agile way, the idea of creating APIs was just a really slow burn. You just can't come in and go, right, CICD pipeline, scrum, sprints, etc. And that's why it's a five-year journey. So now we have a load of people who um, have retrained as developers through Makers, Makers Academy. So they've gone in and retrained as developers. So these people and and the original people as well uh, are are loving learning and growing and mm. doing new things. By definition, you know, these people generally have chosen to retrain as software developers having been other completely other careers, different, different ages, different genders, different backgrounds. Um, so you've now got an environment of people are going, what's new, what's different. Um, and then we've got to find the maturity. So how, how do we know how to do this? Because these guys have learned on apprenticeship. These guys have literally just learned how to code. Uh, I don't know anything about software development. Um, so we brought in a, a partner to, to help with our development and kind of start pulling that together. And then about a year and a half ago, we brought in a, a head of DevOps um, who's who's got the, the experience to kind of just to glue it together, not to come in and tell everyone what to do. Mm. Um, 
And we're maturing that. So literally, even now, we are, whilst I describe that testing, automated testing that we've done, which is amazing, though that's the only real instance of full-scale automated testing that we've done. So we're just kicking off with a partner, a couple of people to spend three months to really bolster our QA capability and start to take that more maturely. And uh, and also, as part of that review, put in a proper CICD pipeline. So it's just slow. It's piecemeal. No one has all the answers when they come in. And quite frankly, if you do have the answers when you come in, you're not going to get the, the, the buy-in. You're not going to get the culture change. Mm. You're just going to piss a load of people off and they're going to leave, uh, which for some people might say, yeah, that's great. But what we do when we work with DNA, uh, we work with laboratories and research and patients. We love people who know what we do, who really understand not how, but, but what we do and why we do it. And in fact, many of our recruits, and I've got three starting uh, this month, uh, are from the business. So they're laboratory technicians or they're uh, admin ops operations, admin staff. Um, and uh, they they go a long way because they really understand that the fabric mm. and the culture of the business. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that passion almost, um, you give them the skills to go with the passion and they, and they fly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why we put out a call. So, look, we want junior business analysts to join our team from the organization. Here's a starting salary. We'll be for 12 months as a secondment um, to you know get the ball rolling. And uh, we, were, we were overwhelmed with recruits. So we increased the number that we were going to take to join the team. Like, we're not going to turn these people away. You know, these people have put their hand up and say, I want to progress my career. I want to personally develop. I want to learn. I want to join your team. I'm not going to say no to any of those people. Um, and, and, and again, I say these people have had radically different backgrounds. You know, our, our, we have lots of success stories, but our biggest success story, um, when I, uh, I've been on the register myself for about 20 years. And I've been called up twice as a potential match, but I've never been a, a full match. So I've never donated because I've not been a, uh, I've not been viable. Um, but the last time I was, contacted was uh, about a year before I started working for Auntie Nolan, uh, before I you know, ever thought of them as a career destination. And um, the person who contacted me, the admin that contacted me, uh, is now our director of product development. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she is amazing. Uh, and I'm not saying that because she's going to listen to this, but she is amazing. And uh, she knows she knows how the business runs better than anyone else in the business because she has worked in every, actually done the work in every single team in our end-to-end -end donor management pipeline. Um, she was there for the building of our CRM. Uh, and then she's grown and developed those skills. No tech background whatsoever. Has only been in tech for maybe four years. Mm. But I think that's uh, we were having this debate the other day. Is is it good? Is it good for a product manager to have a tech background or not? And often, often it's the concepts, not the actual. It's, sweat it's, tears. it's about the way your brain's wired. You know, can yeah. you can you think logically? Can you join the dots? Mm. That's the bit that if you can't do that, then no, <laughs> it's not. But uh, do you need to know how code actually hangs together? And do you need? No, you don't. I mean, I. Um, I was a I was a COBOL DB2 developer for six months of my life. Uh, I was a business analyst for about six months. I was a systems analyst for about six months. You can see a trend here. I was okay 
okay is probably generous, but it wasn't particularly brilliant. And I certainly didn't enjoy it. Uh, and those are the two most important things. Do you enjoy it? And are you any good at it? And if the answer to either of those is no, then walk away. Um, and then I stumbled into infrastructure project management. Bear in mind project management, right? So I'm not building servers. I'm not writing automation scripts. And, um, and I loved it. But more importantly, I found myself in a place where I was surrounded by people who really understood infrastructure and another group of people who really understood the business and what they wanted to do. And then I was in this kind of lonely is not quite the right word, but I was in this solitary place in the middle where I could see both and join them together. And I loved it and I was good mm. at it. Um, and that's the important bit. So, so I have, I don't have a technical, uh, grounding. I didn't study computer science engineering. Uh, I, I did engineering at university. Uh, but, but so to your product manager, You've got to have the right bits to pull it together, but you don't need to know how the code is is created. Mm. Yeah, the only thing that I, that I kind of say in that is that the the product manager needs to be a product owner, depending on what you call it, mm. needs to have the uh, the bullshit factor. They need to be able yeah. to call bullshit on something, and and that That's might it. come. They might come from yes. experience of actually being a developer, or they might come from experience of doing this for long enough that you can smell when when someone's saying something that, that that's not right. So uh, I'll give you a very, you know, loosely related example. My last, last job, you know, I took on this massive infrastructure role and I felt really out of my depth and they were just in the process of putting a system together for a big product launch. And they'd bought two massive servers uh, to be the database cluster and like enterprise grade hardware, enterprise grade licensing. And I just looked at it and going, why does it cost this much? Like, oh, well, because bah, 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 yeah. all these reasons. I'm like, okay, but this is four times the price of that. Are you really ever going to scale up your CPUs on the same box or are you going to buy more boxes? Are you going to ever X, Y, Z? And it was really interesting. So very quickly, without the technical understanding, I was very quickly able to call the bullshit on that and say, right, from now on, we're going to buy commodity servers quite simple you know plow it with ram and, and cpu but but it's it's finalized and when you need more you put more and use vmware and virtualization it just makes sense it just makes sense and over the period of the next five years the whole industry then shipped not because of me obviously but i just saw the trend the whole industry shifted to that and people were just buying commodity pizza boxes uh, to put their servers in their vmware which people like, no, I need a physical server because this is more important. And I could just see that. So I remember being, I remember being at my first CIO conference ever. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is cool. You know, I feel like a bit of a fraud here, but let's, let's see. So, let's so see I want to, I want to unpack that feeling because I have the same feeling, but let's, yeah, let's yeah, the definitely. Um, and it was, it was, it was in the, it was the early days of virtualization, server virtualization, VMware, Hyper-V, I don't think was even a glint in Steve Barmer's eye or, or Bill Gates's eye at the time. And, uh, they did a straw poll, right? How many people have already got their production estate on? And I thought, I thought, surely I've seen this technology. This is a no brainer. This is the future. This is easy. This is logical. Why would you want to do it the old fashioned way? And I thought, you know, 80, 90% would be, yes, we're there. Um, and it was like five, 10%. Mm. And I'm like, ah, right. Okay. So we're, we're actually at the beginning of the journey. I thought this is, this is like not cutting early. This is cutting edge. I thought this is it. Um, so what that came me, can you, can you remember that would have been 2000, uh, 2009. Okay. So interesting enough, we were doing virtualization in 2004 on a project. 
Mm. Um, and we were a small company at the time, a little Microsoft partner. And I had to build out, um, we were building a SharePoint solution. And we actually won awards for this, where we deployed SharePoint to 22 locations around the world. But you could search any SharePoint, which was not oh, wow. Microsoft. Yeah, Microsoft couldn't. No, I talked to Microsoft in 2010 about, yeah. hold on, what you got SharePoint in US and SharePoint in Europe, but they can't see you're joking. You yeah. really? That's what, who designed this? It just <laughs> seems so. And, and don't forget at that time I was already using Google apps and, and G yeah. Suite. Yeah. So I'm looking at G Suite and, um, yeah. So we'll, we'll come back to that thing. I just got one more, one more thing. To sure, say. Okay. Um, yeah. I, 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 I used to hate Microsoft and I now love them. Um, it's true, but I was in a demo the other day and, and this guy was saying, look, it's Microsoft Word and you can collaborate in real time. Let's do a demo. <laughs> I'm like, come on, guys. It's, it's been 15 years. <laughs> You've only just caught up. It's, it was, it was embarrassing, but it is amazing that finally they've got there and this stuff works. Yeah. So yeah, so let's unpack, uh, uh that, that sense of uh, fraud, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I mean, I go to my first ever CIO event, really nice venue, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm surrounded by like proper CIOs. I'm just head of infrastructure. I've just got a new title because I saved yeah. the company a million pounds, and uh, and then I start seeing people who can speak really, really clearly and and be articulated, but then also seeing um, people kind of have got a very old fashioned mindset, I suppose, probably the best way of putting it kind of stuck mm. in the past. I've, I've, I've got this far by doing it a certain way. So I'm going to just keep doing it that way. And I just thought you can do that better. You can do that better. And, and, and I just remember over time sitting and watching presentations and sometimes I'd go, wow. Right. And those wow ones over 20 years stick with me. I can remember them. And I, re I still reference those presentations on a regular basis, but others, I think we've done more than that. We can present better than that. And of course I hadn't been on the stage at this point at all. And, and that was around the time then I started getting on stage and talking about what we've done, but absolutely. Whenever you take on this new challenge, you just think, is it good enough? Are we going fast enough? Do I know enough? Um, Am I making the right decisions? And if not, what are the ramifications of making those poor decisions? And I think if you remind yourself that no one really knows the right answers and it is through experimentation and learning, you can kind of ground yourself a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I mean, obviously, um, you and I have very similar sort of stories. Uh, you know, I came from a technical background, so I was a developer mm. for a couple of years and architect and, but that, that getting to the middle between technical people and business people is always where I felt the most passion, you yeah. know, cause you can hear what they say on one side, you translate it to the other side. Um, and what, and, and the, the sort of the, the longer my career has gone on, the more I've focused on being in those sort of spots. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes just being a CIO or a CTO or whatever it is, it's just being the translation layer and, and being able to filter the right things through, between the people. And I'm not saying don't tell the truth necessarily, but some people don't need to know all the reasons why we're doing something. They just need to know what they need to do when they need to do it. Yeah. It's um, articulating it in the, in yeah. the right way and the right thing. And, but also I look at trends. So I, you know, I, I grew up in infrastructure and I was interviewing people and they're saying, I want to do my CCNA and I want to do, and I'm just, I sit with them and go, that's great. That's a very traditional path, but mm. If you've got a Meraki network, you don't need to know anything about networking. So if you want to be a network engineer, you're going to need to work for AWS GCP or Azure because, or Rackspace, 
because people aren't going to need networks anymore. They're, yeah. they're cloud managed. And, and, and I know the purists are listening to this going, what an absolute load of tosh. Um, but you just see that. And then people taking pride in building Windows Server X or mm. Exchange clusters. I'm going, this stuff is not relevant. So I migrated a, a, a grassroots group to uh, Google Apps in probably around 2010 globally. It was early. It was... It was like none of the magic tools, migration tools and, and so on. But our, I just sat there with the CEO. So, so with, yeah, CEO and founder. And he, he just said, why does our email keep failing? I said, because it's really old and it's really tired and you've got 25 different companies all on different exchange platforms and it's really complicated to merge. Um, so he said, okay, well, what can I do about it? I said, well, you can put in a, consolidated exchange environment. I don't know how you do that, but I do know it will cost you a lot of money or you could just move your, all of your email to the cloud. Um, and at the time, Gmail was the only option. I mean, Office 365 was just birthing, mm. but oh, I think they used to call it Office 363 because of the amount of downtime they were having uh, <laughs> at the time. And uh, it was, it was just awful. It was just, I mean, it's only really coming to its own in probably in the last three or four years, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, and he's like, great, let's do it. And I, therein I learned my first lesson <laughs> when the CEO and founder of, of the almost billion dollar turnover organization says, yeah, let's do it. Doesn't really mean that everyone else is automatically bought in. And um, it was an uphill struggle because we, we literally just announced it to all the MDs and FDs and said, we're going to do it. And they go over our dead bodies. And we did it over their dead bodies. It was, it was pretty awful from a culture change uh, perspective, but technically it was working. They never had problems with their email. They can get it on mobile. They could start collaborating on documents, but some of them just never accepted it. They yeah. kept pining for the days of, of Microsoft um, because it was forced upon them. But yeah, so there's a combination of that cultural change, but also the technology. And there was no way I was going to get involved in, in exchange. And even, even now with, with Microsoft, we're like, do we really still have to have a little tiny exchange server? Do we really still have to have domain controllers on site? Um, and they're like, yeah, but not very much and not for long. You know, we're getting there. We're getting there. Because of course, it's all good well being the new kid on the block with Gmail and say, we're gonna, we've got no legacy to deal with. We're just going to put email in the cloud. With Microsoft, we've got to keep everything backwards compatible. And that's super hard. In fact, Google at the time, Google were better at taking an old Word doc and yeah. converting it to, G, to, to Google Docs than Microsoft were taking it from 2003 to 2000, whatever. Um, because it was core to their business, whereas Microsoft actually didn't want to make it good because they'd rather you just upgraded your license and you'd have to worry about it. Um, and also uh, the idea of subscription. So I remember when subscription really started, it was probably Adobe kicked that off proper and people were in outrage. Oh God, they're going to make us pay all this money every month. I'm going, yeah, but look around your business. You've got, in our case, we had four different studios all using different versions of Adobe. And every time we wanted to do an upgrade, it was a major IT project. It was a major financial project. Wouldn't it be easier if we just all paid? Look, think about how much you're paying the person to be a designer. Now yeah. think about how much, you know, now put in context the cost of paying for that Adobe license, which which are their hammer and chisel if they're a carpenter, you know, they can't work without it. Yeah. Um, put into context, now everyone's on the same version. Everyone's got the latest releases. There's cloud-based storage and we never have to have this conversation about doing a big 
uh, big upgrade in the uh, studio ever again. And, and, and that it is only, and I get it from a financial perspective. There are those drought times where you want to sweat some assets and you just don't have the money. I get subscriptions going to be a bind in those scenarios, like, but we got to keep paying for these subscriptions. But if other than that, 5% of time, if you zoom out, um, you just save a lot of conversations, a lot of decisions, a lot of budget planning. You just get on with it. You need the tool. And if you don't need it, you just stop paying for it. Yep. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, and people have got it now. And we use Windows Virtual Desktop or is your virtual desktop as it's just been renamed. Um, and we can have one running or we can have 1000 running uh, and we'll pay to the minute or the hour. I've lost track of how is your do their pricing now, but that's really great. So it just scales up for wherever the demand is. Yeah. No, and I think the if you get the right kind of service, um, where you're paying that whatever it is, 20 bucks a month per user or whatever the number is. And they're taking care of things like offsite backups and yeah. cloud connectivity and all that stuff, which used to be an IT problem. And now it's just with Adobe. Your, your other challenge now becomes you've got to manage them as a provider of that service. For sure. But For sure. It depends how big the provider is. So, you know, if you're using Gmail or Office 365, you know, you, so imagine you're running your own local, I'm talking very infrastructure based here, but it doesn't have to be infrastructure based, but you're running your own local exchange server and it goes down, <laughs> you know, panic stations, right? Um, but you're running Google Workspace or, or Office 365 and it goes down and you're just like, okay, I'm just going to sit back and relax. It'll be back up before you know it. I don't have to call anyone. I don't have to do anything. In fact, if it's, uh, if it's 5 PM, you can just make your way home. And you know, by the time you get home, it's going to be back up again. And it, you know, it, uh, it sounds blase, but at the end of the day, you are not going to influence Microsoft recovering their UK South data center. They uh, actually, again, early days of cloud, people come and go, Oh, this is, um, uh, this is, uh, bespoke proprietary or something like that. I'll go, no, I want multi-tenanted. Everyone's like, you can't have multi-tenanted. That's crazy. People don't want multi-tenanted. Um, then people might get at your data or how's the functionality going to work? But I say, no, I want multi-tenanted because then if it goes down, it's your entire business that's down. You got to get it back up. But if it's not multi-tenanted, if I've got my nice bespoke hosted in AWS thing and it goes down, you're not going to care because it's only down for one customer. And then I've got to jump up and down to make me the priority mm. for you. And even to, to now, um, we get people, it's all cloud hosted. No, it's not. You've just gone and built an AWS environment for us. Yeah. Um, and we're just changing finance system right now. And, and it is going to be multi-tented proper cloud software as a service solution. Absolutely yeah. essential. Yeah, I remember that we had a, a CRM project and it was exactly that kind of problem where the business wanted some homegrown solution and the mm. platform we were going with that was, that was Dynamics. And one of the reasons was a multi-tenanted, multi, I think the geolocated was just coming out at that point. And yeah. each business would have their own one, but on the same platform. Mm. And it was one of the reasons was our supportability that if it went down, you know, Microsoft would care. Whereas if it was built in the back of a garage, um, yes, they'll care. But, but they're probably not the, yeah, they're probably hosting it on another platform anyway. And even Microsoft's journey to Dynamics 365, you know, when it was called Dynamics 365 at the first time, 
mm, it was just a load of VMs and you were on a VM yes. and they might need to put you on a bigger VM. I'm like, come on guys, you know, application as a service platform as a service. And now you just on dynamics, you know, we're not talking about specific servers anymore and it's scalable, but yeah, Microsoft have, um, it's taken them a while, but they've got there. Yeah. You've, you've got, got to use your thing with, with Microsoft to get away for version three, version yeah. four, and then it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there was something else you said. So, so the imp- the impersonation, uh, wait, imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, does that? Do you think that that's just a natural um, feeling you get when you start anything new, that you kind of lose all your confidence in a sense, and you have to build it back up, and then you get to a point that it, I don't want to say complacent, but you by the time you get back to that level again you kind of look back and go, what was wrong? You know, why was I so worried about this? Yeah, I, I, um, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch my, uh, my good friend, Dr. Mark Reed, who's currently writing a book and, and doing a study called the imposter phenomenon. Um, and, uh, let's share the link to it because you can do a questionnaire and you can yeah. measure your level of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. So I'll, we'll, we'll share that link for Dr. Yeah. Mark Reed. Um, and, uh, so I've done my study and it's, you know, think about when, and, and I get it all the time. I suppose partly, um, I won't take an opportunity unless it terrifies me. So if I was looking at a job, for example, I'm going to look at a job and if I think, yeah, I can do that, I'm not going to apply for it. If I look at it and go, I might be able to do that. It absolutely terrifies me. Can I do that? Then I'll apply for it. And that's because I want to grow. I want to learn all the time, which then subjects me to that doubt because you kind of go, but can I do it? Have I done it the right way? Mm. Have we spent the last three years? Um, And I think what we do, I suppose um, it's about being very open with yourself, with your team and being very transparent. So sometimes you're saying, I don't know. And then when something works, it's looking at well, how could we have done it differently? It's a retro, you know, perspective, but yeah. even if it's one conversation or it's a, it's a three year platform build, whatever it might be, just go, would I do it any differently next time? And I'm, I'm looking for the good things and I'm looking for the bad things. And there are some things that I've looked at and gone, I wish I'd done it differently. Um, and there are some things but obviously in the moment without the benefit of hindsight, um, you, you're just wondering if you're, I suppose it's about feeling caught out and I don't mean caught out embarrassed, but caught out you've wasted resources or you've wasted time mm. or you've not. I tend to try and work with things that have purpose in the, in this case, it's saving lives of people with blood cancer and need of a life-saving transplant. So I don't want to mess that up. I don't want to use charity money, donated money in the wrong way. Um, partly, We've gone slowly. Uh, the, the change that we've made has been slow. And I, I've been criticized by trustees for going too slow and not spending enough money. They have retrospectively come back and said, actually, we can see that the organization wasn't able to keep up with any faster pace and you went at the right pace, which is good. But there was definitely doubts. Am I going too slow? Could we have done this faster? Um, so I, I think it plays out in different ways, but you need, you need good quality. You need a good quality feedback mechanism. I suppose yeah. that's the thing. You need some really 
psychologically safe, trusted spaces where people can give you the feedback. Um, and I had the conversation with our CMO yesterday where you, you don't judge the feedback, just take it. And you can choose to do with it what you wish. But if you take some feedback and you kind of go, no, I, I hear you, but I don't, I don't think that really applies. That's fine. But if you get that same piece of feedback three, four, five times, then you might want to just look a little deeper. Or if you have certain scenarios that are happening from one company to another, and the only common factor is you, then again, it's blind spots, right? Yep. We all have blind spots and we don't know. They're literally their blind spots. You don't know what's in there. So you go, yeah, yeah, I know all my blind spots. Well, you don't because then they're not your blind spots, are they? <laughs> and no one has 360 degree vision. So it's constantly trying to seek out those blind spots. And, and that's hard. If you haven't got a safe, fair, open feedback loop, then it's really challenging to find out what other people think. Uh, and rather than preempt or judge where their view is coming from. You just need to listen to it and, and grow from it. So it's about personal growth and that includes failure and accepting that failure. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, so we, we took a course a couple of years ago, which was to try to use Power BI for our reporting in our app. And we, we spent, I don't know, six months trying to get it working. We just couldn't mm. get it to work. And, you know, it was always the, and this comes back to the joke about the next version of Microsoft, next version of Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. The problem is it was, it was, we never knew the next version was coming, but we ended up redoing everything bespoke. And, you know, the, the thing that I hadn't been listening to was the guys kept saying, we can't deploy this in a CI CD pipeline. We can't, you know, the Power BI yeah. stuff. And that should have been the, you know, the warning light to be going, well, if this is, if we want to, if we ever want to go faster, this is, this is always going to slow us down. Yeah. And that's, it shouldn't have been about the, because Power BI does work. I mean, it's a great tool. It does a lot of good sure. things. But when you want to try to go faster, it's not the best yeah. tool to go faster with. So we looked at Power BI specifically. We looked at it four years ago and it wasn't ready yet. So part of me was saying, I want that perfectly integrated Microsoft Dynamics Office 365 integrated tool that's easy accessible. It's part of our license. But it's not ready. It's not mature enough yet. And we went with a different product because it was the right thing to do. And we're now migrating to Power BI because it's the right thing to do. It's now ready. We can now do this as your data factory and Synapse and all these tools. Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit muddled. Microsoft is still trying to find their way, but it's definitely good enough to, to get off the ground. And the benefits of having a ecosystem integrated platform outweigh um, a kind of proprietary expensive solution. So mm. uh, it, you're right. It's about not yet, not yet. Okay, go. It's now yep. ready. Yep. Um, and it's, yeah, buying your time. Sometimes you will take a product before it's ready because you can see it's only a matter of time until it's going to get ready. And by the time it's fully rolled out and fully integrated, it's ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's usually my feeling with Dynamics is that it's 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 pretty much always been borderline and it's going to tip over at some point. Yeah, and I think once they get rid of some of the legacy that they've got, it'll be a you know a great product um, as a CRM. Uh, as a, as an XRM, um, right? So yeah, because uh, there's Dynamics Finance and Finance and Operations yeah. and uh, CRM and Business Central and you know Dynamics are very generic. Yeah, the, as a as an ecosystem, it's not really quite there yet. Yeah. We, we just looked at finances and go business central, too small, too simple, too basic. Um, finance and operations. I think that's what it's still called. Too big, too expensive, too complex. 
Um, okay. Yeah. And, you know, a thousand pound a license or something like that. It, it, it's just heavy duty. Um, fine. If you want to do some, it depends on the size of your organization. I was looking at zero and sage and like yep. easy, lightweight. We're not, we're using one module of the simplest SAP solution from 2012. Okay. Our requirements are not that big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So we just need something simple to get us into a modern state. And we found a product now. And, um, but yeah, I, as much as I wanted to use the dynamics, it just, it just wasn't right at the time. Mm. Um, and, and that's okay. And, and also you've got to be comfortable. You're not making a decision for life. Yes. It is just yep. for Christmas. You just, yeah. you just need to go. And if we need to change it in a year, that's okay. It's yep. okay. We can change it. Um, that's, you know, you're not committed because you're, you're only paying by the month. Yeah. As well. I've obviously got the, uh, I'm not going to change my finance system in a year and you know, you've got the, yep. uh, the overheads of implementation, but generally if in uh, our HR system, we've had it for about four years now and okay, it was what we needed at the time. Is it, is it still fit for purpose? Well, in parts it is and in parts it isn't, but you know what? I have that conversation with the supplier directly. And so we work together and sometimes, and you know, you've got it right when the supplier says, no, we think you're right. It's, you know, this isn't really for you. My decision to put Andy Nolan off with 365 and not on Google apps or Google workspace, as it's now called, um, was probably the hardest decision I had to make in my first two years. And I, I wrestled with it for so long. And in the end, I knew I knew it was the right right answer because it was Google who told me it was. Oh, interesting. Because we were fully invested in Dynamics 365. Okay. Yeah. Fully invested. We had to track emails. Like 50% of staff would have to track email through the CRM. And it was Google who just said, you know, square peg round hole. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, and then, and then I was relieved. I was like, am I, am I making, am I, I didn't want to buckle to everyone going, we want Microsoft, we want Microsoft. Um, because that's what they've always used and the product still wasn't quite there yet. So yeah, those things you have to be, you have to kind of park your ego at the door and really challenge and look at it from different perspectives and look at the legacy. Mm. That's the key is what's the impact? What's the legacy? What's it, what's it going to look like? Forget you. What's it going to look like for the organization? What are the implications of those decisions? Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. Um, and, and in that, and that's one of those core tools that does, does pull for into everything. So if, if you, if you try to create a, a complicated integrated environment, you spend your whole life maintaining a complicated integrated environment, not doing new stuff, which is what everyone wants is the new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd like to think that everyone wants it. But unfortunately, sometimes I'm like, oh, it's changed. It's different. Uh, <laughs> you know <what> I mean. <laughs> but I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, once they get comfortable with it, it's like they forget that it was ever new or that it was ever different. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, that's change management and, and that's yeah. part of the job, right? Yeah, no, the people, exactly. The people stuff. Yeah, that's the fun part. Um, I mean, I enjoy the building solutions and delivering them, but I, but I actually enjoy the people, you know, like you said, when, when they have, have bought into it and adopted it yeah. and, they, and they're banging down your door because they want to talk about new stuff with it, that's a good sign. Yeah, that's definitely. Not a sign. Definitely. So, great stuff. Um, I think we can probably tie up here. Do you, you want to give out some contact details for people to get hold of you and also your podcast? Yeah. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, uh, I'm available on LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, by all means do connect or, or follow me on LinkedIn, Danny Attias. Um, 
and and that's it i'm not on any other social uh, network it's just too painful and life's too short um yeah. and uh yeah as a result of having been on a couple of podcasts in the last uh three months two months uh, i decided to start up my own um but don't worry ryan it's not a technical podcast there's no <laughs> digital discussions i've I, I talk to the guests and i say we are not talking about technology at all um so my new podcast which is just about to land uh in the next in the next few days it might be out by the time this comes out who knows is uh it's called sondership um and uh you can find us at sondership.com there's a trailer and a blog all about it and what i'll be doing is i'll be talking to really interesting people inspiring people hearing their stories about how they found their purpose and are trying to make a, a change in the world and these are changes, the, the likes of female empowerment, social mobility, um, climate change impact, racial equity. So it's just finding people who are making a change. They've, they've built a platform or, or they've just gone the extra, the extra yard, uh, to make a difference. And the, the podcast is just going to be relaxed conversations, just hearing about not the incredible achievement that they've done, but actually more about the journey that they've gone on and, and all those doubts and all those tears and all of that hard work. Um, and we hope. Yeah, people be interested in listening to it will feel inspired will get them to reflect on on their own you know, purpose and, and the things that they can do so that's uh sondership at sondership.com super looking forward to the first episodes thank you ryan great thanks for having you and well thanks for coming on at least and uh hope to do another one i appreciate it bye-bye thank you for listening to today's episode heather bicknell is our producer and editor thank you heather for your hard work on this episode Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.